So good to be together in worship this morning on this Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate and honor the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who is sent to us uh, to be with us. And uh, so this morning, we're, we're actually going to continue, even though this, this Sunday marks the end of Eastertide, and you know we've been in a sermon series here called Embodying Renewal through Eastertide, that period from Jesus' resurrection up until Pentecost. Uh, we're going to continue it for a few weeks, uh, just because we want to keep leaning into this work of renewal. And over the, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday and the Sunday after that, uh, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and what does the Spirit do in our lives and around our church? And, um, and so we're just going to lean into that, and we're just going to keep this kind of ticking along as a series for, the, for another few weeks. Is that all right? Um, so this morning, we're, we're going to the Pentecost passage, Acts chapter 2, and in a lot of ways, this is like a preacher's dream to preach this text, you know, like Acts chapter 2, this is like one of the all-time best texts to preach from, so I'm pretty excited about bringing the Word this morning. I hope you're excited to receive it, uh, because in a lot of ways, it's not only about the sending of the Spirit for God's people, but it's actually the birth of the church. Um, and so this is like our papa in a lot of ways. We kind of, you know, draw back to uh, the birth of the church there in uh, Acts chapter 2. And uh, so the reason I think this is an important text for us, though, is because we're in a moment right now where the church in the Western world, in the Western culture, is, is in crisis. And around the world, in other parts of the world, the gospel's flourishing and charging ahead. But here in the West, it seems to be lagging. And, you know, this year alone, over a million young people will walk away from the church. And the number one reason will be because it's not compelling. It's not for sociological issues, it's not for theological debates, it's not for, um, it's not for apologetics problems, it's just going to be simply that they don't find Jesus compelling. And so, I think we need to get back to and recover what the church is supposed to be, and Acts 2 is a wonderful place for us to explore that and unpack that together, because it gives us, in a lot of ways, a bit of a blueprint for how we might move forward in this moment that we face. So this morning in Acts chapter 2, I've entitled my message, Renewing a People of Power and Practice. And those are the two big ideas that I want to unpack and talk about this morning. Power and practice. Power and practice. That's where we're going to, uh, together this morning. Because to me, this is in a, lot of words, uh, in a lot of ways what I believe we need the key to recover in the church. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's start with power. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And may God add His blessing to the Word for us this morning. So just to recap and remember where we've come from all the way back to Easter, right? We remember Jesus died, He resurrected, He appeared to His disciples for a period of time in a number of different ways. And, and when He's appeared to them, He's basically told them, hey, don't try this kingdom mission on your own. Peter, I appreciate, you know, the, I appreciate your heart in all of this, but I don't like your follow-through. 
right? Peter, we've seen what happens when you take things into your own hands and kind of go about the kingdom mission in your own way. And we don't want any more of that. You're going to need some power to accomplish this ministry that I have for you. So go and pray and wait for this outpouring. Essentially, that's what, that's what Jesus said to his disciples, like we, we paid attention to last week. David brought the message around the ascension. And it was some of Jesus' final words. If you flip back just into Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see that Jesus tells the disciples there, hey, go, wait for the Holy Spirit that I will send you. Wait for this power to come. And that power will enable, will empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1. And so, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I, I remember reading these texts and in, in these first two chapters of Acts as a, as a young person reading them going, oh yeah, yeah, that's cool. Jesus promised it in Acts chapter 1. And then it's like, they were all there. They watched Jesus ascend off to heaven. And then they went straight back into Jerusalem. They gathered in the upper room and they started praying and they started waiting. And maybe an hour or two later, here comes the Holy Spirit, like a rushing wind and tongues of fire and all that kind of stuff. Anyone else? You kind of think that's kind of how it played out? Maybe, oh, I guess it's just me. You're all better biblical scholars than I am, I guess, um, at least as a teenager. But the, um, the, that's not the case. It was 10 days later. 10 days later, after the ascension, after Jesus delivered this promise, and they were gathering, and they were praying, and they were, you know, this regular rhythm of gathering together to pray and to wait. And what God is doing in this moment, when, when, this, when this outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, is he's, he's shifting from an external reality of the power of God to an internal reality of the power of God. And this is going to be the birth of a whole new covenantal reality. See, the old covenant was primarily external and distant. God was there. He was on the mountain. He was in the temple. He was in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And the law was something that you had to live up to. It was marked by lots of, you shall do this, you shall not do that. But, but there was a promise. There was a promise of a new covenant. It was a new covenant coming where it would go from out there to in here. It would come inside. That fire that fell from heaven ends up being the very fire in our, in our very spirits by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see in this passage, right? Fire comes on everyone. So instead of you shall, in the new covenant, God says, I will. Right? I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to cause you to walk in my commandments and to keep them. I will cleanse you from all your idolatry and I will make you clean. I will write my law on your heart. And it's not something you have to live up to in your own strength. It's something you get to live out with my power. And this Pentecost, this moment in, happens, to, happens to them as they gathered in that upper room. And this marks, I think, a fundamental shift that we need to wrap our minds around and get, get clear, uh, you know, kind of little teaching point here for a minute, uh, um, about a shift from focusing on the omnipresence of God alone, which is, you know, God, Yahweh, uh, the Lord of heaven and earth. But we're not always entirely sure how and when and where He's going to show up and make Himself known, right? How He's manifesting His presence. So we need to shift from a, recognizing God is more than omnipresent. He is that. It's true. But He's also tangibly present and manifestly present. 
where God shows up in the room and He shows Himself. See, the omnipresence of God, this is what happens, like, you know, it's primary fundamental truth of the, of the Christian faith. It's, it's true throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is everywhere, always. This is absolutely true, particularly true in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 400 years there uh, before the Gospels, before Acts, and, and God's been there but it's almost like he hasn't really been flexing very much, you know? He hasn't been like showing what he can actually do all that much. And so people are left kind of wondering. And then Jesus bursts onto the scene and Jesus is bringing a revelation of the tangible presence of God called the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is now in your midst. See, the omnipresence of God, it is biblical. It is real. It is true to God's nature. God is everywhere. It's theological truth. It's available to all. It's universally true. It's passive, it's impersonal, and it's abstract. So, we can know that God is always and everywhere present. Absolutely true. Fundamental truth. That's why the psalmist can write, you know, where can I go from your presence? I can't go anywhere to escape your presence. You are everywhere, all the time. That's what it means to be omnipresent. God is everywhere. But there's a difference between being in the room and showing yourself in that room. You know what I mean? Like you can show up in the room here this morning and you can be in the room, but there's a very different way like to show that you're in the room, right? Like I could sit here in the back and be here in the room and you may not really necessarily know that I'm in the room, you know, but I was present, I was here. But now you all know that I'm here because I'm standing up here, right? You, you see it. You see there's a difference, right? See, the omnipresence is the truth that God is in the room. He is. The manifest presence shows us that God is showing that He's in the room. And from our text this morning, we see this is what's happening in the birth of the church. See, the manifest presence, it's biblical, it's real. It's true to God's nature, but God is perceived locally. It's transformational, not just theological. It's particular, not general. It's personal, and it requires a sense of pursuit and hunger on our part. It's covenantal, which means it's deeply relational, and it's specific. And friends, this is so important for us to grasp. See, this is, this is the shift that's happening at the birth of the church. You know, when, when God initiates the new covenant, it does not happen in the temple in Jerusalem. It happens in the people, right? The place of the manifest presence of God is not in some old covenant system. It's now in the hearts of the people of God, which means when you show up in a gathering of the people of God, this is the place where you should find Him amongst His people. He is here. And this ultimately leads us to a sense of expectation, a sense of encounter that we might actually meet with God. Because if it's personal, if it's manifest, that means that you and I don't need some special system of priests and leaders and sacrifices in order to access the manifest presence of God. It can happen right here right now. God is in the room, and He is available, and if you're hungry, He will meet you. This, friends, is the good news of Acts chapter 2. God answers that hunger with fire, and that distant fire becomes a personal fire. In the Old Testament, it's up on the mountain, 
and the people fear and are afraid, right? In the New Testament, everyone gets a flame on their head. God is present and He's real in personal ways. And this is one of the most important things that, hap- that needs to happen, I think, in our cultural moment within the Western church, is a conscious shift from acknowledging the theological truth and reality of the presence of God to an experiential reality of the presence of God here and now for today. Blaise Pascal, one of the greatest thinkers from the 17th century, he was a prodigy, he a uh, mathematician and philosopher and inventor and theologian, amazing stuff, right? And, and later in his life though, all of that brilliance of, in his mind kind of melted away during a personal encounter with God. One night, the general idea or truth of God became a radical encounter with God for, for Blaise Pascal. And this is, this is how he tried to put it in words. He wrote this in his testimony. It's kind of funny to me. He says, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is the only, uh, he is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. It's almost like this, um, you know, like a philosopher speaking in tongues. You know, it's just kind of this like, like flowing out of him, like almost uncontrolled, right? He says, uh, grandeur of the human soul, righteous father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. And, 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 and he has this radical encounter with God and you know what he does with it? He inscribes these words on a piece of cloth and stitches it on the inside of his coat so that it covers his heart because he wants to convert that moment of encountering the presence of God into a lifestyle of living out the presence of God each and every day. He doesn't want to live on just some past experience that happened some time ago in his past, in his earlier years. He wants that to be a lived reality every day of his life. Richard Oral Roberts writes this, he says, the sobering truth is that the greatest hindrance to the growth of Christianity in today's world is the absence of the manifest presence of God from the church. I mean, imagine showing up to church and not meeting God. What a concept, right? It just doesn't make sense, biblically or theologically. That's the very thing that we should be doing when we come together. You show up to church and you meet God, right? It's all, and it should be like part of the reason that draws us to church week in and week out, because we each have the Holy Spirit within us. That fire is inside of us. And so when we come together, it should be this cumulative effect, this growing that increases our faith and lifts our spirits and and raises us up. I mean, in the Old Testament, Moses said to God, unless your presence goes with us, then we will not leave from this place. We will stay here unless your presence goes with us. He says, how else will anyone know that we are your people? Well, here's an idea, Moses. How about circumcision? How about some really strict dietary restrictions, you know, that's different to everyone else around you. How about a moral or ethical code that you follow? How about you organize your family in a certain way? There's, there's so many different ways that we can culturally distinguish one people group from another, right, with human culture. But he realizes that's not the secret. That's not the real thing. The secret is the presence. And if we're not presence people, then we are not your people, This is what we see in Acts 2. The presence brings empowerment for God's people to join in God's mission. Look back at at, at verse 4 in Acts chapter 2. 
It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Encounter leads to empowerment. I mean, this this is amazing, right? Think about Peter, for, for one example. He goes from denying Christ to a teenage girl in the courts of the high priest uh, to willing to stand up in that same city and preach against the, the same religious leaders, hey, you killed the Messiah. I mean, what happened to Peter? You know, think about that. I mean, Peter didn't get like a really strong pep talk, have a good night's sleep, get up and eat some kale and be like, right, I got this. Here we go. Come on. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't some kind of like, you know, Peter, you know, doing some lifestyle tweaks and maybe some anxiety reduction hacks in his life. You know, this, no, this is a transformation in his life. He had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and the power he needed from that encounter became available to him to, for witness, right? Teenage fishermen became apostolic martyrs at the ends of the earth because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the mission of God. And I want to say to us, friends, wherever you are in your life, you need a fresh power for the mission of God in this moment. You need it. I need it. It doesn't matter how godly you are, how well you've walked with the gifts of the Spirit in your past, in the history. We as a church, we don't have the power we need for the cultural moment we are in. We need that power. We need that power, friends. I don't know about you, but I remember, you know, I grew up in a church, um, uh, you know, I'm grateful for my Christian heritage. I grew up in a family, a uh, Christian family who we were very active in the life of the church growing up and good church and all that kind of stuff. But if I'm honest, those early years of growing up in church, I didn't hear much about the Holy Spirit. And the sense I got from uh, the church, you know, that I was growing up in was there was almost like people were more afraid of the Holy Spirit than they were embracing of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, because it was, oh, that's, I don't know if I can trust that. Oh, I don't know if that, you know, that doesn't add up in my mind. I can't always make rational sense. Oh, you know what I mean? And, and so, so I remember growing up and then at 18 or 19 years of, years of age, I remember feeling a little bit stuck in my faith. Like I just wasn't growing anymore. I wasn't growing in the ways that I wanted to be growing. I wasn't experiencing the kind of breakthrough and freedom from sinful patterns and, you know, that kind of stuff. I wasn't experiencing new life and resurrection life and I wasn't experiencing power in my life. And at this time, our family had joined a church plant team. We we're planting a church and the pastors of that church had, uh, were more welcoming of the Holy Spirit. And, and so they would welcome the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And, and I remember, you know, seeking one of them out and he took me under his wing and began mentoring me. I'm like, tell me about the Holy Spirit. Teach me. Who is the Holy Spirit? How does he act? How does he move? How can I get more of him? I need this power in my life. You know, what's got me here isn't going to carry me forward and I want to keep moving forward. I need the Spirit in my life. And so I remember Him teaching me, taking me through the Scriptures and we'd unpack them together. I remember Him taking me on prayer walks around where He would you know, help me to discern and see things in the Spirit around what God was doing in certain places and with certain people. I remember... Um, and, and, and I'm like, I want to be filled with the Spirit. And he's like, you got to seek it. Press in. Ask God for it. He loves to give the gift of His Holy Spirit. So ask Him. Seek that. And, um, and I remember going forward for prayer. We'd have praise and worship nights, you know, fairly often like we're, like we're going to do this evening. I remember going forward and getting prayer and ministry and people uh, blessing me and, and, and praying the filling of the Holy Spirit over me and all that. It was all good and I was learning much more. I was becoming much more open and receptive to the Holy Spirit. But it, it didn't really happen until one night when I was out on my own 
seeking God and I was on a hilltop on my own praying and seeking the Lord and calling out to Him and then out of nowhere, almost unexpected and it was this involuntary just rising up from the inside of me came this flow of tongues, of another language that I wasn't sure what it was, I wasn't doing it, it just kind of welled up and overflowed out of me and, uh, and I just had this profound encounter of the Holy Spirit, just, just head to toe felt overwhelmed with His love and His grace, His goodness and His power. And it was transformational for me. It went on from that. And I remember, you know, being quite, you know, passionate in those early years into my early 20s. And and I'd just carry around. And all of a sudden, I'd have these, like, deep prayer burdens that kind of came out of nowhere. And I'd be, like, just have to stop whatever I was doing and just kind of get on my face before God and call out to God in prayer for, like, 20 minutes. And, you know, like, just praying and interceding. And and God would give me these things over and over and over again. I went to the... um, And then from there, I went over to America, over to the USA, and I got married and studied and dove into ministry life and leadership. And um, I got mentored by some incredible leaders over there. I'm so grateful for them. Had amazing opportunities to study and learn and to grow. I gained strategy and technique and leadership dynamics and all that kind of stuff. And at the time, we were leading our youth ministry, and and we saw this explosive growth over the six years that we were there at at a church. Really, really good things happening, like almost indescribable at certain points because it seemed like the power and the presence of God was at work. But I remember waking up one day and being confronted with this thought. It must have been from the Lord. Clint, you have lost the power of God in your life. You've learned all these leadership strategy and dynamics and skills and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's all good. That's all good, you know, good stuff. But without the power and the presence of God in your life, man. And it's amazing, you know, how much you can get done in the church without the power of God. But friends, I just sense in this moment, it's coming to an end. It's coming to an end. We've hit a generation who does not care how good church is if the power of God is not there. This is our reality. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And that led me on this journey of deep repentance and deep reorientation. And I want to say to you, to you, church, you need fresh power. You need fresh wind. What got you here won't bring you into the future that God has for you. We need another Pentecost I need fresh fire coming through the roof. I need another river of language coming up out of my life. I need fresh prayer burdens that just drop me on my face before God. How about you? Friends, we need this. And the truth is that for me, that season of repentance and reorientation, it was, it was good. Seeking more of God's power and presence was wonderful. Many great things started breaking up, but I got to be honest, it just didn't last. It, it faded away. It faded away. And, and this has bothered me for a long time. For many years, I've reflected on this and I've been like, why didn't, why didn't it carry on? Why didn't it sustain? Why? why uh, it's bothered me for a long time. And, and over the course of time, you know, as I reflect on it here and there, um, I've had little pieces of insight or revelation that have kind of come. Um, but, but the full picture hasn't really come together for me until just recently in the last few months. Um, you know, I had these amazing leadership mentors who would drill into me this concept of, Clint, God will not anoint you more than He can trust you. So you've got to grow godly character so God can trust you, you know? Got to grow godly character. And, 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 and this, this growing revelation essentially be, just kind of exploded for me through this text in Acts chapter 2 uh, recently when reading through these early chapters in Acts. And, and it brings me to the second point. 
that I want to talk about this morning. That is of practices. Acts chapter 2 verse 1, power. But look with me at the end of Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Look at what goes on. They take all of that power and they build it into tangible practices so that they can use that power for the mission of God. Look what it says. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is fascinating, right? See how the wind and the fire was poured into shared discipleship practices in the life of the early church. In essence, they had the power, but they didn't have the container in order to sustain it and to carry on with it. So all of the wind and fire had to be turned into teaching and into fellowship and into the breaking of bread and into prayer and into generosity and into miracles outworked in their own local context so that the idea of power could be translated into a community that could handle that power. Do you see it? This is so important because, you know, that much of what has happened in the charismatic and Pentecostal churches over time has been what John Tyson describes as power tools for toddlers. And that's always a dangerous thing, right, when you get that, when that happens. When you've got more anointing than you've got character, a disaster is very close. So we've got to have the kind of discipleship that can handle the power of God. Ultimately, the church is called to not just spiritual experiences, though I love those and I honor those, and those are sacred, right? Ultimately, the, the, those experiences are need, need to be translated into maturity and into health through solid discipleship. Neil Cole writes this, he says, ultimately, every church will be evaluated by only one thing, its disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples, It does not matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumerist, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. Pretty confronting to read as a church leader, eh? But this is fascinating, deeply convicting to me, because in the Western church, we have so many programs. We have so much content available to us more than ever before in human history and so little transformation. I wonder if there's a connection there. We need these practices of the early church, teaching and fellowship and and prayer and breaking of bread because we need lifestyles that can sustain the power of God without blowing us up. So part of the weakness of the charismatic and Pentecostal church is this, glory, you know, gifts and fire, but little or no character. Dallas Willard writes this, he says, the general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. This is the feature of the human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. See, We can't assume that the gifts of the Spirit are some substitute for holiness. They just aren't. 
they're not. We can't expect that the power of God poured out in gatherings is enough for personal devotion and to form us into mature uh, disciples of Christ because it's not. We need teaching because we live in a culture of lies. So we need truth to reveal who Jesus is in light of those things and to debug us from the cultural programming that happens throughout every other moment of our living lives in this world. We need fellowship and learning to love one another because we live in a time of so much division and isolation and fragmentation where we've gotten really, really good at villainizing and demonizing and canceling one another instead of actually loving one another. We need to break bread and open our homes and practice generosity and hospitality in order to get rid of the cynicism and hostility that can easily rise up inside us so that we actually learn what it means to love one another like Jesus said we would. And we need prayer, not to, just, to be turned not just into those here and there moments, maybe of encounter, but into a lifestyle of seeking God in devotion. And here's the key in all of this, power is necessary and really good, but formation is better. Formation is better. There, and, and the truth is, there is no formation without repetition. No formation without repetition. Now hear me. It may sound like I'm being a little harsh on the charismatic Pentecostal of churches. That's not my intent at all. I, I have many friends who I love dearly, who are to this day, lifelong friends who are part of the charismatic and Pentecostal circles, right? And I've been in and around them. I've spent a lot of time since that kind of 18, 19 years of age, spent a lot of time in and around you know, Pentecostal and charismatic churches and been incredibly blessed. Amazing gifts of grace, amazing treasures coming from those circles and friends, you know? Uh, and so I'm not trying to like bag on them at all, but, but there's something, you know, that one concerning trend that I've observed over time is that sometimes in those circles, the tendency is to think that if you just get one more dose of the Holy Spirit, that would fix everything. Almost like we're witches just casting spells, right? But that's not what we do. It's not what we do. We are people being formed into the image of Jesus, and this is a completely different reality. And we know this in every other area of our lives, don't we? Right? No one would come forward for prayer in, in, in a, in a gathering and say, look, I'm 50 kilos overweight. Would you just pray for me that the weight would fall off in an instant? Right? No, because if God doesn't address the vision of a healthy person, then you're only going to put it back on again slowly over time. Right? It's the same thing with money. We can pray, God, I need a miracle. I need your provision. But if we don't learn to steward the finances and the resources he's trusted to us over the course of time, we'll end up just going back into debt. It's, and, and it's always, you know, it's a, if we're always complaining we don't have enough time and we pray for miracles to make up for our laziness, God may fix it because He's kind, but over time He won't because He wants to develop us into mature people. How are we doing, friends? Are you still with me? We need to reject that zap view of spiritual growth. We do. So the Bible shows us we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And keep on being filled continually over and over again. We need that to be, to be people of power. But it also says we need to train ourselves to be godly. Train ourselves to be godly. Power and 
practices. And so we need the balance of both of these things in order to become well-rounded, mature disciples of Jesus. And the same is true for any church community, right? Any faith community. If you could take the power and combine it with the practices, you would have a church that would be an unstoppable force in the world. That's the truth, friends. Why is it that these things so often end up just kind of at war with each other? You know what I mean? Like where, where these discipleship and practice-driven churches are like, you don't need all that experience and emotion and hype and, and everyone else is like, no, you're cold and you've got no fire. You know, why can't we put them together? Why don't we bring these things together? Why don't we have the best of both worlds? I mean, the Apostle Paul did. Think about it. The Apostle Paul, he could preach philosophy, philosophy to the best leading intellects of the day and then turn around and walk into a meeting where he would see faith in the room. The Apostle Paul would write the book of Ephesians and a whole bunch of the New Testament, which, by the way, isn't bad theology, and then the next minute go and raise someone from the dead, seamlessly integrated, right? And those are the kinds of disciples we need in our world today. We need power, but we need practices. Well, they don't need to be at war with one another. They need to be seamlessly integrated. And I believe this is the kind of disciples, this is the kind of churches Jesus is trying to make here and now today. Here's what power gives us. Power gives us encounter and passion, and anointing, and breakthrough, and manifestations, and urgency, and crowd gathering around to see this move of God happening, a movement that flows out of it, and gifts of the Spirit. And here's what practices gives us. Practice gives us formation, and discipline, and faithfulness, and process, and skills, and sustainability, and deep commitment, and health, and character. And when you put power and practices together, friends, you get history-shaping community. History-shaping community. Now, I need to say this cautiously, but do you know how rare it is in the modern Western world to find churches who bring these two things together well? There are few and far between. And I think it's one of the enemy's greatest strategies because if these things come together, he knows it, it'll be an unstoppable force. Right? So he uses division and he uses theological debates and he uses dominant personalities and, uh, to keep these things from coming together because he knows that when they do, they are potent. Friends, this is, I don't know if you can tell, but this is kind of burning inside of me this morning. Um, this is the kind of church that we are seeking and wanting to be here at the well. If I'm honest, we've been talking about the practice side of things for quite some time and I think we need to embrace more of the power generally speaking, to balance that out. I'm going to say it even more boldly in faith, friends. This is who we are. This is who we are becoming. This is what God is doing among us. This is what, this is what we hunger and long for. This is what we carry. So for you, friends, individually, are you living into the thing that we carry as a church? Are you living into what's available to you from God Himself? And as we come to close this morning, I want to tell a story. It's probably a story that um, many of you have heard before. Um, but I don't want you to hear this story as about some group of people a long time ago and, a far, and far away. That they're so distant and removed from you. I want, to hear, I want you to hear this story as people who are just like you and me. Ordinary, everyday people. Because that's who they are. It's the story of the Moravians. And in my opinion, they're one of the greatest, if not the greatest example of integrating power and practices in church history. 
story goes that Count Zinzendorf, uh, a, a noble German uh, leader, inherited or purchased a plot of land from his grandma. And then somewhere in the, the early 1700s, uh, groups of refugees from different countries and different backgrounds all kind of ended up there on his land. And, and even there, he's living out the, the, the process, or the, 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 the practices really of an Acts 2, because he, he's, he just welcomed them. He, he, he shared what was his with them. And he said, set up camp, you know, build houses. Let's, you know, like make yourself at home. But, but it was a deeply divided community. They had, they had Calvinists, Arminians. They had people who were about high church and low church. And they had all these differences. And they, yet they're all trying to live together. They're fractured apart uh, in their differences. Whereas, you know, surprising, which is almost surprising because you'd think refugees have experienced so much suffering and hardship. That would be the thing that bonds them together beyond their differences, right? But it didn't. And, and so Zinzendorf sees this fractured, divided community on his own property, and he goes door to door, talking to each one and, 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 and inviting them to embrace unity and to get move past their differences. And, and he says, the line that he used, he says, um, because the fire of God won't fall on a divided altar. And so gradually, over, over time, he won over the hearts of everyone in the community, and then on the 13th of August in 1727, they held a communion service. And after uniting their hearts together, they received communion together. And the power of God fell on that community. The, the power of God fell on them and, and it was just unrelenting. They said it just kind of lingered and they just were just absolutely in the presence of God, experiencing His power coming on them. And it went on and on. And when it started to wane, it would just kind of rise up again. And it's, this went on for like 12, 13 hours in that initial encounter. No one left. They all stayed. And, and this is happening in Hernhut, by the way, Germany, which if you look it up on a map, is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's not anywhere near a major city. It's got no strategic nature to it. It's not an economic center. It's not a cultural influence. It's like, there's, like it's not accessible, like have great access to other parts to make strategic sense. It's just literally the middle of nowhere. Uh, ordinary people came together. And so they began to ask, God, why did you do this? This outpouring of your presence and your power. How do we steward it? And, uh, and they're like, we don't want this fire that you're bringing, this fire on the altar. We don't want it to go out. So let's pray. And so they started praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 24-7 prayer uh, vigil kind of happening throughout their community. And so they gathered the whole community. And you can imagine, right, they, they wrote down all the hours of the week and put names in a hat and they started drawing out names of the hat. You know, so if this is us this morning, you'd be like drawing out names and Tisha's here and she's hoping for like a, a nice 7 p.m. hour or whatnot. Sorry, Tish, it's 3 a.m. on a Tuesday for you, mate. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's just kind of like, and everyone just banded together and they prayed and this prayer movement wells up within them. So much power and so much practice that it was sustained for over a hundred years. 24-7 prayer in a small community, previously divided. And any time it waned, the, 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 the records report that a spirit of prayer would come on the children and they would kind of rise up with a fresh burden that would ignite the rest of the community to join them and follow their lead back into prayer. And so they had this strong prayer culture happening in Hernhut, you know, the Moravians. And, and they, go, they started asking, God, what is all this for? You know, what are you doing here? And God, God began to speak to them and say, we're going to be a people who bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. It was at a time when, you know, travel was becoming a lot more accessible and you could get around the world a little bit more easily. And so they heard of an island in the British Isles where the only way to get there was to be a slave. 
And so two young men from that community sold themselves into slavery. And they went off on a ship to that island. Tremendous results. Over 2,000 people on that island came to faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and they became a model community. When you put power and practices together, friends, it's an unstoppable force. Others from their community are sent off to America on mission. And at sea, their ship, you know, they're, they're on the ship and they encounter this terrible storm that's threatening to shipwreck them. And an, another, there was another passenger on that ship, a young man named John Wesley. And Wesley wrote in his journals that he realized that the Moravians had something he did not. Because in the midst of that storm, they were peaceful and calm and displayed such deep abiding trust in God that he did not have. And it haunted him. He went on to do mission in the US and, 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 and a lot of that in America ended up being a bit of a failure for Wesley. And, but it continued to haunt him so much so that when he got back to England and he returned to England, he went and sought out the Moravians. He's like, what do they have that I do not have? I need some of that in my life. And so he shows up in a Moravian prayer Bible study Moravian Bible study, and when they're, they're cracking open, they're, they're going into Romans, and they, they crack open the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, and they're reading through the preface, and Wesley has an encounter with the Holy Spirit, so much so that he described it like in his journals, my heart was strangely warmed, and the anniversary of that encounter was just this past Wednesday on the 24th of May. Wesley uh, goes on from there, uh, because he sees the, the power and the practices, goes on there to spark one of the greatest revivals throughout the world that, that kind of treks down. We, we fuck a papa back, we're Wesleyan church, hey, we, you, we go back through there, right? This is who we are. The Moravians would have these all-night prayer meetings, and on this one night, there's about 60 of them gathered at night, and they're praying all night, and you know, Wesley was there, but there was an, also another young man, a, name by, a, a man by the name of George Whitfield. He was there. And at 3 a.m. in the morning, the power of God came on that prayer meeting. And, 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 and it said that they, it's so heavy and strong that they couldn't stand any longer. You know, we might talk about it as being slain in the Spirit. And Whitfield, out of that moment, out of that encounter with the power of God, he comes to America and starts preaching and, and sparks one of the greatest awakenings in American history. And that happened because 60 people gathered in prayer and the power of God met them. William Carey, often recognized as the father of modern missions. He, uh, he was working against this really strong Calvinism of the day when he was around that says, hey, we don't need to go on mission and reach the heathens because God will just do it if he wills it. God will make it happen, right? And he was coming against that. And so he goes into the, Carey goes into the Baptist union at the time and he says, hey, why don't we, why don't we go you know, to the heathens and bring the gospel to them like the Moravians do? They're seeing tremendous fruit, tremendous result. And so out of that, he goes off to India and pioneers what now has become the modern mission movement. Why? Because he understood that power combined with practices results in culture shaping, history shaping movement. We're nearly there. It's a pretty generative community, right? William Wilberforce in Parliament, raging against slavery. One of the arguments given in Parliament is that, oh, well, we shouldn't release the slaves because they'll just turn on their owners. They'll turn on their masters and kill them. It'll result in civil unrest and, and this just won't be good for anyone. We shouldn't do that. But Wilberforce hears 
about an island where 2,000 slaves have come and placed their faith in Jesus and are living at peace and working in their conditions in a God-honoring way. And so Wilberforce can point to those two young men who sold themselves into slavery as a reference point in Parliament to overthrow slavery in the British Empire. So let's just recap. This little church... At their height, at their peak, estimates say it was maybe three or four hundred people. Little church in the middle of nowhere, Germany, have an encounter with the presence of God, where God's power comes. They build a container to hold that power and presence. They become disciplined people, hungry for more of the manifest presence of God. And out of that, they ignite and inspire one of the greatest revivalists in history, John Wesley. They inspire one of the greatest evangelists in history, George Whitfield. They inspire one of the greatest missionaries in history, William Carey. And they inspire one of the greatest politicians in history, William Wilberforce, who does go on to abolish slavery. And here's the point I want to make. Friends, do you see how potent power and practice can be when they come together in a community? And I have one more question for you. Do you want to be one of those communities? Do you want to be one of those communities? I believe we do. I sense the hunger rising. It did at the 9 a.m. too. And I sense it now. The hunger is rising and saying, yes, Lord, we want this. We need this. We want to be that kind of a community. Those kind of people who combine power and practices. Because when God finds people that place a priority on His presence then I believe he finds a community that he can make history with. And I just say, well, why not us? Why not us? He, he could do it, right? We know God comes where he's wanted. And we're just saying, God, we want you here. We need you here. So friends, don't miss it through daily distractions. Don't have some live on the, the relics of some secondhand experience from the past. Let's be open to divine disruption in our lives here and now. Let me pray for us as we prepare to respond to God's Word this morning. Lord, we do open our hearts and open our lives. Lord, I do sense the hunger arising and the faith rising. I just say, Lord, fan that into flame in Jesus' name. Lord, grow our increased hunger. Would you be speaking to each one of us? Lord, if there be any part of us that might hinder your anointing and power and outpouring of your Spirit on us, would you ever so kindly put your finger on that, point it out in our lives, that we might receive your forgiveness, your healing in that, and pour out your power on us, we pray. Lord, would you raise us up to be men and women, disciples who live out of power and practice, a community here at the well where we become a church who is not just seeking this and pursuing this, but embodying it, that we might be part of the renewal you are bringing here and now in Ototahi. Do it, Lord. We're counting on you. We all pray together. Amen.